This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I'm your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. I'm so glad that you're here. If my voice sounds a little hoarse, it's because two of our good friends got married this last weekend. And between the singing and the screaming and the shouting and the just talking, my voice is a little bit raspy this morning on Monday when I record this. Now, today we have eight questions. They are all wonderful. They span things from feeling ashamed and dealing with shame thoughts to how do we fulfill our own needs and also dealing with financial insecurity and therapy and how can we do that? If you're looking to get your questions answered more frequently, or maybe you have one question a month that you would like answered, you can hop over to my Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Katie Morton, and you can join Patreon now. Um, even at the $1 tier, you can access the live streams and be a participant in our Discord server. You get access to extra videos and like I said, multiple live streams each and every month. At the $20 tier and above, you get to ask a question on that monthly live stream and ensure that your question gets answered. Without further ado, let's jump into today's questions. The first question says, Katie, why do I constantly feel ashamed of myself or my actions? It says, hi, Katie, happy Thursday. I am constantly ashamed of myself and my actions and the, the most minor incidents make me cringe. Every time I go out in public and interact with people, I have to play through the situation in my head afterwards. It sounds harsh, but I hate myself for being who I am. And I wish I would have just stayed in bed. Sometimes I just want to change my whole personality so that I'm not that weird anymore. I know that this is not possible, but I just want to be different so badly. The constant shame of my own person is so exhausting, and I don't know how to handle it better than just avoiding all social situations altogether. I struggle with depression, but at the moment, I'm not having any symptoms. I do have complex PTSD, but I don't know how that can be the root. So where is the constant feeling of shame coming from? What are your thoughts about that? Thank you for everything you do. You make the world a better place. Oh, too, you're too kind. And there was a comment that said, as an add-on, how do we learn to feel good enough? Because I feel like that plays a huge role in the issue similar to the one discussed above. I agree. Okay. Oh, I have a lot of thoughts. Now, first of all, the replaying that we can do afterward. So let's say we go out with friends and we have a good time, we think. And then afterwards, we're like, oh my God, was I too loud? Did I say something stupid? Maybe I hurt somebody's feelings. Well, those are worry thoughts. Uncontrollable worry is how we define generalized anxiety disorder. And so part of me when I was reading this question was like, this sounds kind of like your depression has taken a break and your anxiety has bumped up and they're almost like teeter-totter. That can happen to a lot of us. And if any of you struggle with both, you're like, 
you, you feel shitty no matter what, right? And they can happen at the same time, which is incredibly uncomfortable and honestly pretty dangerous because that could be when we, you know, maybe have suicidal thoughts and things like that. So all this to say that it sounds like we have some social anxiety. Because this happens to come up in social situations, and you said the only way to handle it better is just to avoid them. And I don't agree with you. I know that that feels like the answer, but the answer in my mind is to find ways to manage your anxiety. Now, that could come in a lot of different forms. That means that we could see a therapist and start talking about it. Um, Cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT is great for working with anxiety. Um, we can also just do the like good old fashioned talk therapy that can help even DBT or dialectical behavior therapy can be helpful for those of us with anxiety. EMDR can be beneficial. Exposure therapy. There are a ton of different modalities that can assist us if we find ourselves struggling with this. There's also, and I may have already said, medication. So seeing a psychiatrist, getting on an SSRI or SNRI, letting them know that, you know, these are your worry symptoms. It's not just depression that you deal with, but you deal with kind of both sides of this. Those things can be incredibly beneficial as well. And then there's some behavioral things, things like finding ways to calm our system down. Because what happens with anxiety is that our body starts to feel like it's somewhat under threat. And I know you're like, Katie, under threat, why? Like anxiety is not me. I'm like worrying about everything. That's because you're concerned or worried that something that you do is going to cause people to not like you. It's going to put you in emotional threat or physical threat, right? We can get kind of anxious if we're, for instance, when Sean and I go out to dinner, he prefers to not have his back to the door. Some kind of safety security thing on his end, right? If he does have to have his back to the door, maybe that could cause him some anxiety and some worry, right? And so usually it's emotional, like stress or, or concern or threat that we feel like some threat to us psychologically, but it also could be a physical threat. And when we have those kinds of concerns that can turn into uncontrollable worry. And so we need to find ways to calm our system down and pull our amygdala offline so that it doesn't have to be firing all the time. If you don't know, our amygdala is part of our limbic system and it's what creates that fight, flight, freeze, fawn response. It sends us into the stress response. It triggers it and like sounds the alarm, which does a lot of different things in our brain. For instance, it shuts down our prefrontal cortex for the most part, which makes it hard for us to put organized thought together, hard for us to plan. It can affect our personality and the way we interact with other people because it's how we formulate sentences and structure and personality. Um, it also, you know, makes our pupils dilate and our nasal passages widen so that we are ready to fight, flight, freeze, right? Think of the things it's preparing us to do. So I want to find ways to shut that down. Things like doing a full body shake, splashing cold water in your face. If you didn't know, if you kind of dunk your face into water, it triggers what's called the diving reflex. You can look it up. It's kind of interesting. And that triggers our vagus nerve. And that vagus nerve is responsible for a ton of things. It's our longest, I think it's like 10th cranial nerve, if my memory serves me. But anyways, it is involved in so many things in our body. But one of those being the calming of our nervous system, allowing us to be energized for our day without too much. Does that make sense? And so maybe we do that. Maybe we journal. Maybe we talk to a friend. Maybe we pet a dog. Pet, petting a dog releases oxytocin, calms us down, helps us feel better. There's a lot of different things that we can do. And so I want you to try to consider 
what things you can do to release some of that anxiety. Now, because you said that you also have complex PTSD, there's a little piece of me that's like, I wonder if this depression and anxiety symptomology is a part of that. Because we all know, for those of us who have any PTSD symptoms at all, that can come along with hypervigilance. And I wonder if that that fear of our psychological safety and the, the worry of that and the social situations we put ourselves in, did I say something stupid? Oh my God, oh my God, right? That could be coming from kind of that hypervigilant space. It might not be, but it's worth exploring and talking about. Um, I think that is, let me see. So where's the constant feeling? Okay, back to the shame. Now, because we have all of this happening, and I think it's partially anxiety, when we're having these responses and we have complex PTSD, we talk shit to ourselves all the time. And shame is super, super related or closely connected to trauma. And the reason being is that when we're traumatized, usually by the hands of someone who was supposed to care for us, right? A parent, a loved one, a a boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, when something like that happens, it kind of shakes us to our core. And we can think, why would they do something like that, right? We try to make sense of it. That's our first knee-jerk reaction, why would someone who's supposed to care for me and love me, or maybe they did, they cared for me and loved me yesterday, why are they treating me like this and harming me today? We try to make sense of it, and you cannot make sense of someone who abuses others. There's no sense to be made out of it. And so, in, so instead, because we can't actually be like, oh, it's because this happened, you know, we probably don't even have that information. We don't even know what's going on. Oh, they were abused. We might not know that. Not that that condones a behavior, but it can help explain it somewhat, right? There's all these things that we don't understand, especially if we're younger. We don't have any of that information. And so what do we do? We blame ourselves. I must have done something wrong. Something's wrong with me. That's why this keeps happening. I've heard from a ton of you and a ton of my patients over the years, They'll say, what do I have like a sign on my back? Please abuse me because my dad abused me when I was growing up. And then I've had a series of abusive relationships as I've gone out into my life or I find myself being abusive, right? Why does this keep happening? Something must be wrong with me because shame isn't just, and I don't say just to minimize, but shame isn't the something bad happened or I did a bad thing. It's not guilt. Shame isn't, I wish I wouldn't have done that. It's not embarrassment, Shame is I'm broken. Something inside of me is wrong. I'm not okay in some way. Something's wrong with me. And that I believe is most of the time born out of trauma and abuse of any kind, physical, emotional, sexual, any form of neglect. We can start to think that something's wrong with us if we were raised that way, right? Because how else do we make sense of that story? And so I believe, I I know that's kind of like a you're like, Katie, get to the point. The whole root of your shame thoughts, I believe is trauma and the shit talking that has come along with it. And the way to fight our way out is to pay attention to the conversation that you're having with yourself. It sounds like after you have any kind of social interaction, you are like, what is wrong? Like you, you start blaming, shaming, you feel guilty, embarrassed, whatever. We go through the cycle, pay attention to that. And let's not continue to allow that to happen. And I know you're thinking, well, easier said than done. Like if I could just stop, I would have stopped. I know it's difficult. However, what I mean is paying attention to those thoughts we have after the fact. 
And instead of allowing our brain to continue down that path, we know it really well. We don't, it's not helpful. We've had those thoughts before, right? Instead of doing that, let's bridge statement it. Let's check our facts. If that isn't working and we're like, I can't even get on board with that. Let's distract, do something different. Instead of sitting in silence or having, I don't know, a TV show on, you've seen like a thousand times where you kind of, it's on, but you're not connected. Let's do something different that forces us to focus. That could be anything from painting our fingernails, organizing a part of our home, going for a walk. That could be more process-based. We could journal about how we're feeling. We could talk to a therapist friend. We could do anything like that, but let's do something to get us out of that pattern. And then bridge statementing is really where it's going to be at. We aren't going to be able to jump to this positive. Oh, I I think I'm okay. Nothing's actually wrong with me. That was just my trauma talking. Our brain's going to be like, what? I don't believe you, right? That's not what we think every day. That's not how we talk to ourselves. What the hell is this thought? I don't believe it at all. And so we're going to have to slowly build a bridge between this negative shit talking that's been happening potentially for our whole lives into a happier place. It takes time. I know it's tedious, but also know that your shame didn't come on overnight either. It's something that's kind of grown and we have fed it without knowing that we're feeding it. And so we have to stop feeding it and start feeding healthier, more balanced thoughts. Okay. Now the add on about feeling good enough comes from that same, they're like cut from the same cloth. When we grow up in an abusive home and we have complex PTSD, that shame, something's wrong with me. You can see how directly correlated that is with like, I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy. I'm not lovable. Those can be the messages that we receive because of the abuse when we're growing up. And again, we're going to have to pay attention to the conversation we're having with ourselves and use some bridge statements to move it into a healthier direction. Again, bridge statements are not, I'm amazing. Everything I do, you know, should be put up in a museum. Everybody should love me, worship me. No, bridge statements are, I'm open to considering that I'm not such a piece of shit. I'm not as big of a piece of shit as I thought I was. Maybe I'm open to it, right? This kind of possibility, not being closed off and just believing these negative thoughts out the gate. This kind of, it's possible is where I want you to live. And that's where bridge statements come from. Okay. Hang in there. I know it sounds tedious and I do it myself and it is tedious, but it does get easier. If we really work this muscle of like paying attention and challenging those thoughts a little bit, I can tell you because of experience that give yourself maybe a week and it will get, it's so much easier. It's almost like, I want to say by week two, it was like a knee jerk reaction for me to think more positively. I know crazy, right? And if you really have a hard time getting out of your own head, I've talked about this in the past, but I haven't mentioned it in a long time. I ran this experiment with myself years ago, like you guys, like six, seven years ago, because I just didn't like how negative I was. We all get in these ruts. Don't think I'm immune to it just because I'm a therapist. I just am more aware of it, which sometimes I think is worth worse. But I was just thinking negative thoughts about myself and in my environment, people in, not even in my life, just strangers, just shit talking myself and everybody else. And I was like, you know what, Katie, I don't like this. I don't like how I feel. I don't like living in this brain and this body. And so I challenged myself. If I had a negative thought about myself or someone else, I had to immediately 
come up with something positive instead. Now, does it mean I have to believe it? No. But by doing that, not only did I feel better, and this was especially true when it came to strangers, like people on the street. And I'd be like, what is, what is he wearing or what? Or anything. If I had, was forced to be like, actually, they look really nice. Oh, it looks like they're having a nice day. Oh, look at them having a cute conversation. Like just forcing myself to think about something positive. I don't say it out loud. It's just in my head. But God, it changed my mood. It made me feel so much better about myself and the people around me and my environment and my just life overall. So you can give that a try too. I swear to God, it's life-changing. It's something I might try to start again because it was so beneficial. Okay? Let's move on to question number two. This question says, Katie, how does one persist in therapy if they are battling financial insecurity and sometimes poverty? This is a great question. And I know I've gotten shit online. People are like, therapists charge too much and it's so expensive. We don't really make that much. I think, and I'm not, we'll get into this, but I think it's important to understand why therapists charge what they charge. And when we're working in an outpatient basis or in a clinic, and I'll explain, I'm just going to be as candid as possible. Now, when we open an office as a therapist, we have to rent that. Now, if you're in a city, it's fucking expensive. I used to rent my office to the tune of $45 an hour. So if I charge $150, take off $45 of that immediately, just for me being there. Like, just start thinking about that. So that's just the rent. Then I have to potentially pay for someone to do my billing if I don't know how to do it, if I take insurance, which is why a lot of us don't, because we don't know how to do that. And the time that it takes just eats into any of our profits. Okay. So 45 bucks is already gone. Obviously that was in Santa Monica. If you're in a more rural area, maybe let's say it's like 15 or 20 bucks. Okay. Then I have malpractice insurance. And the way that it works as a therapist is depending on how many patients you see each week, you pay more. Now, I think my malpractice insurance is like $115 a month, okay? Then there's the cost of just being on your own. You have to pay for your own insurance in the States, which, which with Sean and I, it's over a thousand bucks a month. So let's say mine's 500 a month, right? And just your overall things that a lot of us get from our work that we don't realize. So that's just the bare bones, not to mention continuing education units that I have to gather each and every, well, it's two years. You have to get 36 hours every two years. I am fortunate enough that I have created CEUs for other clinicians. So I have access to some CEUs free of cost. And that's what I do as much as I can. But then if I go to a conference or I pay to access when we're talking hundreds of dollars, like for a few hours, my cousin goes to one every year it's a weekend. And I want to say she pays like $800 for that weekend, but she gains most of her hours. So think about that. Every two years, you got to spend around $2,000 just to get that together. Now, and I'm just being completely candid with you about the kind of the cost of being a therapist and not to mention student loans and things, you know, blah, blah, blah. But so that's just like overhead costs of running a business and being able to like employ yourself. Now, if you work at a clinic, you have to pay to that clinic. So it's usually like 10% or 15% off the top of all that you make that goes to the clinic because they pay for, usually it's like marketing, advertising, and bringing patients in, okay? So that's kind of how it works. And that's why therapists charge what they charge. And I know you can still be frustrated and not think that it's fair and 
Trust me, I know it's expensive. As someone who pays for their own therapy out of pocket every week, I know how expensive it is. But I just want you to kind of understand because the take home that therapists have after taxes and, you know, all the things that come out, like I said, rent. And if we take insurance, that means that we don't get our full fee. Usually we get like 70 bucks an hour. All of the stuff, malpractice insurance, the average take home, I want to say is $55,000 a year, which I know isn't like poverty, but it's also not this crazy living. We make like a decent middle-class living. And so just keep that in mind. Now, when it comes to therapy, and if we're having, we're struggling to pay for it and we're struggling with financial insecurity, potentially poverty, there are tons of options. Number one, there are I mean, I know I was in Los Angeles, but we have them here in Austin too. And if you have any kind, even back in my small town that I grew up in, we had a clinic like this. There are low cost or free therapeutic clinics in most areas. Now, as we get more and more rural, it's probably hard to find a therapist in general. But if you have a therapist, ask if there are low or free, low cost or free mental health clinics. The one in North Hollywood that I worked at when I first finished school was called the Center for Individual and Family Counseling. I think they may have changed their name slightly, but I bet if you look up the CIFC, you can still find it. Um, You would pay anywhere from nothing to, I want to say full fee was like 80 bucks or something, but most of my patients paid like $20. So that's an option. There are also you know, groups online that are free. There's hope for recovery. I talk about that one all the time, but there are a ton of free groups online. If you are battling with addiction or codependency, AA, NA, Codependence Anonymous, Al-Anon, those are all potentially therapeutic supports. I know they're not the same as individual therapy, but another way to get some support. And also I haven't even mentioned the fact that most therapists leave a couple of slots open in their schedule for free or low cost patients. Now I had, when I, when I slowly whittled my practice down, I had, I think two at the time that were paying half or nothing. Now I always like people to pay a little bit because then you have some skin in the game. That's why we have co-pays by the way, with insurances is because for you to pay means that you'll at least be invested enough and want to participate enough. Right. And that's the belief behind a copay, FYI, if you didn't know. And so you can ask your therapist if they work on a sliding scale or if they offer any low cost options, those are things you can ask them. And a lot of times when you ask a therapist about a sliding scale, they'll tick down, let's say they charge 150. They'll be like, I could do 125. It's okay at that point to say, can you do less? I can't afford that. But you have to come in knowing what you can afford and tell them what I can afford is X. Could you do that? It's okay to ask. If they say no, they say no. Then we know that, right? And we have to move on. If we can't afford therapy, we don't need to lump on another stressor, right? And I know that can suck because you're like, well, I really like my therapist. That doesn't mean we can't come back to them when we're a little bit more financially stable, but we have to know we can afford it. So before we get into this conversation with our therapist, know what number you can afford and tell them that. Also know that therapists will, for a brief period, maybe see you for no or little cost. And then when things get more stable, ramp back up. There's a conversation that has to be had about that. They're probably going to set a limit on the number of sessions they can do that for. Again, because you know we have to pay our bills also and we don't want to, you know, put ourselves in poverty, right? And so those are some things that we can do. Free online groups and things like that. Also just resources in your community. There are a lot of community centers that offer free therapeutic stuff too. If you're in school, 
college or, you know, K through 12, there's often free counseling and therapy available that way too. Ask about that. But those are just some ways to manage and talk to your therapist. If you're already in therapy, let them know, let them know what you can't afford and what you can't and what you're stressing about. Because the last thing we want to do as therapists is cause more stressors because of your financial situation. Okay. I hope that just kind of gives you a background of like why therapists charge what they charge, that we do leave open slots open in our, in our schedule, open slots open. Jeez, Katie. We do leave slots open in our schedule to accommodate things like this because we know that a lot of people need it and can't afford it. And we don't get into the work that we do because we want to be a gazillionaire. We get into the work that we do because we want to help people. So ask, okay? Okay. Moving on to question number three. This question says, hey, Katie, it is often advised that we should fulfill our own needs so our happiness doesn't depend on other people. But why do we live in a society among 8 billion people if we can do everything for ourselves? I don't understand this logic. If I can give myself everything... I won't need anybody. Thank you for your work. Okay, now there was a comment and an ad on this. It says, this question really resonates with me. I battle a similar thought spiral almost constantly. Adding on, what does quote unquote need even mean? My brain won't let me accept labeling anything as a need for myself that isn't essential for survival. Without food, water, and sleep, a human will die. These are needs. Is anything else truly a need? You say that humans are wired for connection. I may want connection, but I don't feel comfortable calling it a need. That's interesting. My life may be better if other people are part of it, but their lives will be worse if I'm part of theirs. Look at that nasty way you talk to yourself. Whew. It feels wrong to say I need connection. I'm supposed to, to take care of myself and help other people. Okay, I love this question because it's uh, the person who asked it and the follow-up is very black and white thinking. Now we can fulfill our own. It's not, it's not just needs. It's not really what it is. It's fulfilling like the inner child work. For instance, we're fulfilling our own needs from childhood that weren't met because we can't have other people. Like someone said this in the comments, you can't depend on people to be there a hundred percent of the time. And that can create new wounds. So it's not that we can't need or depend on other people in some ways. It's just that we can't count on them or expect them to heal us. Does that make sense? When we expect other people to, to fill these voids and to heal these wounds that we have, we are opening ourselves up to more trauma, more pain, and inconsistent offering of that support because other people have their own shit going on, right? They're not around all the time. They can't take care of us all the time. And that's not their responsibility. It's our responsibility to take care of ourselves. Okay. So all that being said, we do need other people because if you haven't read about polyvagal theory, I encourage you to go down a rabbit hole reading about it. It's very interesting. Dr. Stephen Porges is the gentleman who did a lot of the research. I don't there's probably new research out now that's not his, but he was like the godfather of polyvagal theory. And that is what I talk about when I say we're wired for connection. It's the reason that when we're babies, we are soothed by being held and making eye contact with our caregivers. If you've ever fed a, like a newborn child or just a little baby that still needs to be bottle fed, when you hold them in your arms and you give them a bottle, they look right at you as they eat. 
when they suck and swallow that bottle and that calms them down. It is part of the reason that breastfeeding is so soothing to children and part of the reason we give them bottles and we try to mimic that exact same process is that it hits our vagus nerve and that sucking and swallowing calms our nervous system down. Our vagus nerve, that's why vagus nerve stimulation is popular online is because it's really calming. If we find ourselves super anxious or overwhelmed and we have a sucky candy or that's why honestly also a lot of my patients are binge eaters, the eating or binging and purging. That sucking and swallowing, that eating can be soothing. Unfortunately, it's kind of the way we're wired because if we're crying out as a child, it's because usually we need to be fed or we need to be cleaned, right? That doing that, uh, our caregiver offering us that necessity for survival soothes our system. <sighs> our amygdala stops firing. We stop throwing a tantrum or crying and we feel better. That's why hangry is a word, right? That's why we use it so often because we, you know, we get upset when we have a need that's not met and that sucking and swallowing soothes us, calms us. We feel better. Also, we're not hungry anymore. I anyway, Let's not go down that rabbit hole too far. Okay, so back to the original question. Our happiness doesn't depend on other people. I didn't say our happiness doesn't. There's a big difference here. We're jumping a huge gap between fulfilling our own needs. So our happiness doesn't depend on other people. We shouldn't 100% depend on other people again because they're unpredictable, but it's okay to need people in our lives because like I said, our nervous system is wired to connect. It's what keeps us alive as, a ba as babies, right? We need someone to care for us. That's why babies are so darn cute, right? So that someone will care for them. They're sweet and they smell like they have the baby smell, right? And you want to care for them. You feel for them. You don't want them crying. Also cries are like hard to even deal with for a reason. You shouldn't let the baby cry, right? It's supposed to tend to it. So all of that to say that we need to fulfill our own emotional needs when it comes to our healing. And we need to connect with others to calm our system and help us feel soothed. And that also brings happiness and that brings uh, relaxation. It brings... Uh, a feeling of purpose or feeling like we're kind of part of a group. Groupthink can be, I know people are like, groupthink can be really dangerous and people are talking about it, you know, when it's like us versus them. And yes, that can be. However, that kind of tribe mentality is wired into us because we need other people to help us survive back in the day, right? Think of caveman people. Like if I couldn't hunt, I might die. If I can only gather, I might have like something missing in my diet, right? Or vice versa. We need other people to help us out. There's safety in numbers and all of that stuff. And so I know I'm getting kind of on a tangent, but I really think it's important to understand like the evolution of us as humans and our nervous system and why we need other people. And at the same time, even though they feel like, I don't know, they almost feel not just cognitive dissonance, you know, where you're like, oh, that doesn't quite work. But it's almost like you feel like one, they can't coexist, but they can right? I can heal, be responsible for myself and healing my own psychological wounds and offering myself the needs that I have, right? To build up my resilience, to make me be able to weather life storms, to feel ready to take on the world. And 
need other people around so that I feel like I'm part of something bigger. I have support that I can talk to when I'm having a tough time and we can lean on each other. I'm not depending on them to, to fulfill all of my needs or to do things for me, but together we can accomplish more and I can get the support and offer the support that I need. Does that make sense? So it's because it's so calming to our system that other people are necessary but we are going to be responsible for fulfilling our needs and also even taking the time and energy to make those connections that are real connections with people who get us. So we we kind of need both. And to think that it's one or the other is that black and white thinking that we can get pulled into. And that's just not where it's at. That's not, that's not fully true. Does that make sense? I hope so. Now, the person who talk about uh, needs and like, what does a need even mean? I talk about needs um, when it comes to, um, first of all, there's basic needs, right? We can talk about survival needs, things like food, water, shelter, things like that. Taking medicine as prescribed, like seeing a doctor when you're sick, it's basic stuff. Like I talk about like the halt, the hungry, angry, lonely, tired. We can get into the angry and the lonely, and those are emotional needs. We need other people, right? We're going to need somebody to let us know that we aren't alone with our thoughts and our worries and our stressors, that we can talk to them about it, and they can offer support and vice versa. And the person who asked that question saying that they really struggle to say that they have a need, I'm very curious where we've received that message. My guess would be some abuse in our past or something growing up with our parents maybe wanting us to be quiet all the time. Maybe they never came to our aid or assisted us when we had a need. Maybe they told us we were too needy. We were too loud. We were too sensitive. We were too whatever. Something happened to cause this to happen in you where you feel like you don't have the right to take up space or have needs. And you said you want connection, but you don't feel comfortable calling it a need. It's part, it is part of the way that we are made up so that we could survive. And so unfortunately, it is in our nervous system, that polyvagal theory, that when we have true connection with people who understand us and know us on a deeper level, this isn't just like surface conversations. When we have other people around us who care for us and we care for, we can feel energized and motivated while also feeling soothed. And I think we would all agree that that's like the prime place to be, to feel like you can get things done and you also don't feel anxious about it or overwhelmed. That's the ideal. And that's where connection comes from. And that's why we need it. And so we can take care of ourselves and have other people support us too when we need. I know it's hard for people to to hold both. That's why this is question number three and it got a ton of thumbs ups. But the person who feels like they can't ask for it and they can't have needs, I would encourage you to mention this in therapy and dig into where that is coming from. I have a feeling again, like it's, it's old messages. And like I said, at the first question, we can argue back against that using some bridge statements. We can challenge those false thoughts, but I think it'll be helpful for you to figure out the root. Like, what would it mean if you did have needs? How are other people different from you who have needs that you're fine offering support to? Who in your life has told you you're too much, too sensitive to, to something? Have you ever heard that? Do you believe that? Do you tell yourself that? If someone offers support or assistance or help to you, what do you tell yourself about that? Think about it. In there lies your answer, but I think definitely some bridge statements and challenging those thoughts. Okay.
Let's move on to question number four. Question number four says, hey, Katie, I was wondering if you could talk about doing the basic stuff when you're in a depressed period. Honestly, it feels like I've been in a constant depressed state for like the last three and a half years. It embarrasses me so much that I really struggle to shower, do my laundry, brush my teeth and wash my dishes. People don't know that I struggle to keep up, keep these up on a regular basis, but I don't know how to make it better. I would be ashamed to have to tell people. And I worry that if I tell them how I'm doing for real, that they might put me in the hospital, which I'm terrified of. I would really love any advice. Thanks for everything. Okay. I'm so sorry you're going through this. And I know, unfortunately, when it comes to like basic hygiene of ourselves and our living spaces, there's so much shame and so much embarrassment wrapped up in it. And this feeling like to tell people would just be like the worst thing ever, you know, like there's this expectation that we should all be able to care for our environment, all be able to, but it takes a lot out of us, especially my depressed patients. Like just to shower is like such an ordeal. I even feel that sometimes if I like wait too long and it's nighttime and I'm getting tired, I'm like, Oh, the idea of like showering and like the process is like exhausting. Right. So I, I mean, I understand a a piece of that. Now, my advice is see a psychiatrist and tell them that your depressive symptoms have gotten really intense and it makes it hard for you to keep up with your hygiene and basic life things. And you need help. We don't have to, if we're worried about being hospitalized, the only reason they would hospitalize you is if they feel that you're a danger to yourself or someone else. So if you have children that you're caring for that are being neglected as a result, they would care about that. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. If you have health concerns you aren't tending to because you can't care for yourself, they would be concerned about that too. But to tell them that you struggle to shower regularly, do your laundry, do your dishes, things like that, I don't believe that they would hospitalize you. They would just recognize that your symptoms are so intense that you're like, oh, you're bogged down by them. Let them know it's making it hard for me to keep up with the things I know I need to do. And they'll put you on medication if you're open to that. And I'm just throwing this out there because when we're drowning in the symptoms, I can give you a shit ton of therapeutic tools, but you don't have the energy to do that. So why would I offer you more stuff to do? Any therapist would know that's not going to help anything. And then that makes us feel worse about ourselves, right? If I give you stuff to do and you can't do it, then you're like, well, fuck, I can't even do that. And then this shit talking gets stronger and louder, right? So let's see somebody and let's get our head above water. That's kind of how I see like medication in general when it comes to especially like depression, anxiety, things like that. 
when we're drowning in the symptoms, we need to get our head above water. For some reason, I always picture, I don't know if you guys have seen this, but like for little kids, like babies, they have these funny floaties that go like kind of around their neck and they go under their arms and stuff too. They're like a little like life jacket, but it has a little donut with a thing that kind of sticks out around their head. So they don't like drop their head into the water and drown themselves on accident. And I always think of medication like that, like that little kid life jacket with the donut around the neck and the little, almost like a cone type of thing. Anyway, let's get you one of those so that we can pull your head above water so that you can do the basic things. I don't believe they're going to hospitalize you. You're reaching out, you're proactive. And yes, I know that's going to take all the energy you've got, but let's call and set up an appointment and get in there as soon as possible. Okay. Hang in there. It can get better. Sometimes our symptoms just get too strong. You're not alone. Depression is like this heavy weight. That's why I loved, um, does anybody else love the show Big Mouth? And human resources also funny. But Big Mouth, they have like this depression cat. It's like a big purple cat. And they have the anxiety mosquito that comes in. It's like, oh my God, they're going to talk about you. It's like spinning like a thousand miles a minute. And you're like, that is what anxiety feels like. But the depression cat's like heavy. And she talks with a slow, low voice. And she's like, why don't we just lay down? And she lays on top of them. And that's what it feels like. It's like the weight and just the energy exertion it's going to take to do something is too much. And so we need the medication to help pull that big cat off of us so that we can get up without it taking every last ounce of oomph that we've got. So reach out. Okay. It can get better. Now, Comet says, I tend to struggle with basic things as well. Showers are probably the most difficult. I thought it was due to my depression, but it seems to be more anxiety or trauma related. I've talked to my therapist about it and we've discussed ideas to help. The thing is that it did work for a while, but I've slipped up again and have been triggered a lot recently. So I haven't been able to shower in several weeks. I'm so ashamed and afraid that my therapist will be annoyed with me if I bring this same issue up in therapy again. Any advice would be welcome. Therapists do not get annoyed. It's okay to bring the same issue up. It clearly is an issue and you've been triggered a lot lately. And we all slip up. Trust me when I tell you no therapist thinks that we're going to offer you some tools and they're going to work and then they're going to keep working forever. No. Life is a challenge. Things happen. Stuff is out of our control. We can become overwhelmed. I've had patients cruising along for years doing great and then work stress increases. Oop, they fall into a depressive episode. So you're not alone. Let your therapist know that Ugh, I've been having a tough time again. And chances are, if you're seeing them in session, they've noticed. It's one of the things that was like beaten into me in school was just to always pay attention to the hygiene and the way that your patient like shows up for therapy, like the way that they dress, the way that they act, you know, are they late? Are they on time? Does their hair look greasy? Does it look like they've eaten? Offer them water. Like, you know, we're checking up on you because those things can fall by the wayside. And we know that. So just let your therapist know that was working and it was so helpful. But, you know, just like you told me that I've been triggered a lot and now I've fallen back off. That's okay. We expect it. We're not going to be agitated or annoyed. It's part of our job. And that's why it's also like I talk about coping skills, like you need five or so that work for you. It's because there can come times, come a time when it, what was working doesn't work anymore and we need to have more options. Okay. It'll get better. Let them know. Okay. Let's move on to question number five. It says, Hey Katie, I've watched for nine years, but never asked a question before. <gasps> wow. Well, here you are. 
Thank you for all that you do, especially as a mental health professional that is open and honest about her own struggles. It gives us and the next generation hope that we too can work in the field, irrespective of our past problems. Oh, good. Yeah. Following on from the running theme of attachment from previous Q&As. Here we go. Could it also be true that someone may be misinterpreting a healthy attachment forming with a therapist as one that feels uncomfortable? Yes, we'll talk about this. For context, I think I am very much disorganized. I didn't grow up with either one of my parents present and caregivers that couldn't fully fulfill the roles of my parents when I grew up and were emotionally neglectful and abusive. The exposure I get from therapy makes me feel very uncomfortable, but I also know that my therapist isn't a threat and is very understanding. Because of my previous experiences and abusive biological step-parent figures, the idea of being vulnerable and safe is terrifying. I struggle to do eye contact when she smiles. It makes me cringe, literally. (laughs) Ha ha, I'm trying to keep going because I know it will be worth it, but it feels so weird. Any insight would be appreciated. Thanks again. This is a great question. And yes, is a short answer. A healthy attachment forming for those of us who don't have healthy attachment can feel horrible. It's foreign. We don't know what to expect. Someone offering us love and support can feel like they're setting us up to like take advantage. We're like, oh, am I going to be abused again? Right? Make us very nervous. And we're not used to it. It's akin to, I don't know if you guys recall, I've told you a few times in the past that like I had a series of just like really shitty boyfriends and they weren't like super, super long-term relationships. But my therapist was like, I feel like we're in this pattern and we need to break it. So I want you to be uncomfortable in your next couple of relationships. And that's essentially what that was. She was like, these are unhealthy and you've gotten into this pattern where that feels normal. Let's not do that. I want you to be uncomfortable because you want something different. That's not working out. That's really shitty and like abusive and terrible. Let's put you into a situation where it's a little bit better. And that's what's happening is your therapist is offering this better situation. And you're like, because you don't know it. It's unknown. It's new. It's not something we were raised with. We don't know how to react. We're like, what do you want from me? Right? Never had anybody offer us this in a real way. And so we can feel super uncomfortable. And I think that's kind of part of the healing process. I would let your therapist know that you you feel like it's a very secure and healthy thing that they're doing, but you're super uncomfortable with it and you want to kind of unpack that. And I think you you it sounds like you have a ton of insight into this already, like talking about how your biological and step-parent figures weren't around and you're definitely disorganized, right? And like your attachment style is not isn't the secure attachment, especially when it comes to people who are like carers of you, like a therapist, right? And I think that's why it makes you cringe. It makes you uncomfortable is all back to the fact that we're not used to it and we don't know what to do with it. But trust me when I tell you that it can and will get better. Just be honest with your therapist about this and about what's coming up for you. Okay. Cause that will be part of the healing is just acknowledging the fact that this, and there might even after this initial, like, oh, and it feels uncomfortable. You might slowly find yourself thinking like, but I don't know if I deserve it. Right. We can go through these different stages of like relearning how to attach and how to have what they call like a earned secure attachment. And that's those of us that work through our issues to to earn it, you know? And I don't know if I like or don't like the earned component. I've gone back and forth because to feel like we have to earn something can be so triggering for some of us. So either way, we can develop a secure attachment after having a different one. So let your therapist know what's coming up and let's work through it and know that it will get better, okay?
Let's move on to question number six. This question says, hey, Katie, I know that I have negative self-talk, but I feel like it motivates me. So I'm afraid to be nice to myself. I fear that if I stop, then I will get nothing accomplished. I feel like my negative self-talk motivates me to be better and to try harder. I'm afraid if I try to stop or use or even use bridge statements that I will become lazier and I won't accomplish anything. I also don't want to come across as self-absorbed or confident because then what if I make a mistake? That's interesting. Don't believe you can make mistakes. Sorry if this doesn't make sense. I know you talk about ways to stop negative self-talk, but my negative self-talk doesn't want me to stop. Thank you so much for everything that you do. Of course. And I'm only giggling because this is very common and it's very true. I know what you I understand. Totally makes sense. Okay. A couple of thoughts. The fact that we, it's like such a, and it is kind of societal. And I feel like, I don't know if you're around my age, but I'm sure there's like a whole swath of people who feel this way that like, you know, that coach that yells at you, come on, you losers, you got this, right? That old way of like, no pain, no gain. And like, you need to be shit talked into motivating. That's the only way to motivate isn't actually true. And we find through research that what motivates, and they do a lot of research when it comes like parenting and children, like how do you motivate them to do their homework and to help up around the house? And the best way is actually rewards, reward systems. We find that like, uh, even when it comes to parenting, when we talk about, uh, what what's the word I'm looking for? When we're trying to reprimand a child or punish a child for doing something we don't want them to do, you can read about like operant conditioning and essentially I want to say it's just called psychological learning and its techniques. I took a course of it in undergrad and in grad school, we had something similar where we have to, you know, learn all of the, there's tons of research and old studies that cannot be conducted anymore just because I don't think they're ethical, but the ways that we learn and unlearn behavior. And so somewhere in your life, maybe, you know, from a coach or a teacher or a parent, or maybe you were in band. So it was like your conductor or your director, if you were in plays or anybody who's in a position of power, maybe you were told at some point or you read or believed through society or any kind of way that we're influenced that the only way to be motivated was to to talk trash. And that's the only way we can get going. However, we know through research that negative reinforcements, while they do work, it's actually best when we're teaching children and we're trying to not just reprimand, but like parent in an effective way. The best way is through reinforcement or removal. So it's kind of like a negative reinforcement or not negative reinforcements, like the removal of something. Okay. So let me explain better. And I'm probably mixing up the words. It's been a while since I've gotten into basic learning principles, but the way that we know it works is there's a couple of different research studies. There's the Skinner box and there's the, it's, it's not Pavlov, but it's similar. And it was like rats where they would hit the, this lever. And when they hit the lever, a food pellet would come out. And so it would get them to hit the lever, right? Cause they're getting rewarded. And that's how we know basic principle. I think I was like in the sixties, that study fifties or sixties. Now we know today, and there's been tons of other research done that when we offer a reward for something that people, not just rats are highly motivated to do the activity. And so I used to do this when I learned about this in school, obviously, I'm, I'm a total nerd if you didn't know this, but then I used to set rewards for myself for finishing papers, for getting a certain grade on tests, for completing different projects in school, doing extra credit, all this stuff. I'd set up different rewards for myself and the rewards would vary. 
everything from like things that I would spend money on, like, oh, I really want this pair. I remember in college, and this is just so, these are like back in style, I think now, but it's just ages me, but I really wanted hardtail leggings. They were like the coolest thing. And they were a little expensive. I want to say like 70 bucks. And I'd saved up my study, my work study money. And I knew I could get them, but I wouldn't let myself get them until I got at least a B plus on this test that I had. And so once I got that test back, boom, I went and got those leggings. Now it doesn't always have to be something that we spend money on. It could be like a massage. It could be treating yourself. It could also just be, I could take a day off where I do the things I love to do. Maybe I go for a walk. Maybe um, I know this is buying something, but like I get a coffee from my favorite shop or I spend time with one of my friends I haven't seen in a while, or, you know, I let myself sleep in and I do X, Y, or Z, right? We can do different things and ways to treat ourselves. And I would encourage you to kind of challenge this false belief that you can only shit talk yourself by trying different things by trying to set up rewards. Now, when it comes to the research, you can really get nerdy about it. Like the Skinner box, when they tried to create something that they did, like, right, we're trying to teach them to do a specific action. Like I said, like the rats hitting the lever and the pellet coming out and them getting food, then they keep hitting that lever. Then for a while, they took it away. So no pellet came out, they hit the lever and they hit the lever a lot. They'd be like, what's going on? And then it would cease, right? You would remove that learned behavior. They're like, I guess no more pellets come out of this. So I'm not going to hit that anymore. Even if they put pellets back in, no lever. They stopped, right? And then there's also like learned helplessness, which is almost like when we keep putting a negative reinforcer in, like if they hit the lever, they get shocked or something, they'll stop doing it. But if they keep getting shocked, even if they've stopped doing the behavior, then the rats would almost just like play dead. Like, uh, I just learned helplessness. There's nothing I could do, right? So I know that you're like, Katie, what, how does it, but this relates to us. This is why they did all this research is to understand how we learn and how we unlearn behaviors. Now you have this like belief or this learned behavior that the only way that I can be motivated is if I shit talk myself. And I'm super negative. And in order to cease or to remove that behavior, we have to either, which I doesn't really work in the scenario, which is why I didn't offer it, is like to not do the thing, even though you shit talk. But I don't want you to not get what you need to get done. I don't want you to put you in a position where you feel like, oh, I didn't finish school or work or things on time. And then the other is to offer a reward for the behavior instead of the negative, like shocking you, right? Because the shock, I'm, you know, is almost like, it's almost like that negative reinforcer is the only way we know. It's like you only know to get the shock. And you're like, if the sh if I get the shock, then I do the thing. And then I, then I feel good. But you're not really getting a true reward. And so that's my challenge. I hope this makes sense. And you can read about it if you want the Skinner box and basic psychological learning principles. But what I really want you to do is to challenge yourself to, with, to not do the shit talking if we can... And instead to come up with some rewards that are rewarding. That's the thing. They have to feel good. They have to be something that we want, we need, we enjoy, something that's a breath in. I want you to offer those rewards. So let's set those up. And they need to kind of happen, you know, boop, 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 just like step by step as you can accomplish certain things. And let's see if that will change it. Okay. We're going to challenge. We're going to use some of our psychological learning principles and we're going to apply them to you. And I think that should work. Okay. But keep me posted. Now, the other part of this question, they said they don't want to come across as self-absorbed or confident because then what if I make a mistake? 
So you're telling me that the belief system you have is that if I'm self-confident or self-absorbed, that means I never make mistakes. That's the belief. Can we challenge that a little bit? Because I would argue that some of the most self-absorbed and confident people make a lot of mistakes. They're just able to weather that storm because they have a ton of like built up resilience and positive self-talk to be like, I still know I'm better than other people or whatever they think, right? There's also nothing wrong with being self-confident. The self-absorbed, I don't, I mean, that that does have a negative connotation. Nobody wants somebody to be completely self-absorbed. They want to leave space for other people, right? But to be confident is a good thing. And people who are confident make a ton of mistakes. They just know that they can try again and it will be okay. And so I really want to challenge that thought and where you heard it or why you believe it or who told you this. Because feeling good about yourself and being confident is a good thing. Confidence is sexy. Confidence is attractive to people. Confidence br and brings people want to be around confident people, right? Just friendships, romantic relations, the whole gamut work. It can be really good for us in our life. And so I would challenge you to think of a different way to describe and define confidence. And then maybe try to find somebody on TV or in your life or in a movie of, that you like who is confident and assess how you think about them. Do you really think they don't make any mistakes? Just, let's challenge that a little bit, okay? Okay. I hope that makes sense, my answer. I know that I kind of got off off a topic there a little bit with the learning techniques, but it's really fascinating. It's really interesting. And there are, we sometimes have to get a little creative, right? You can't always just apply these learning techniques directly, right? Like I can't, I'm not tell this person to zap themselves to stop, but there are ways that we can, okay, well, what worked was actually the reward. And then the reward pushed and motivated the rat to hit the lever. So what could be the reward we could offer? Could we teach you to do that? Because we could right? That's how we learn. Okay. Let's move on to question number seven. So question says, Hey Katie, how do I overcome a fear of physical intimacy? I spent all my life single as a, as I was working hard to get out of challenges that life was throwing at me. I finally finished graduate school and got a job. Congratulations. And then found someone every time he touches me anywhere on bare skin, I am scared. I can let him touch me, but I feel extremely overwhelmed. Although I'm an adult, it feels like I'm a little girl being inappropriately touched by an adult man. I have no romantic or sexual experience. How can I overcome it? I am in therapy for trauma already, and I don't know for how long a person can wait until I'm healed enough. How can I stop pressuring myself and feeling guilty about this? I have no history of sexual abuse or even physical abuse and feel that my response is hugely disproportionate to the trauma that I've been through. Why can't I just get over it? So much to unpack here. And there's a comment on this as well. But I'm I'm interested about the trauma because you said you're in therapy for trauma. And it sounds like you're already minimizing and invalidating yourself about like, you know, your response is hugely disappropriate. You were traumatized. Your response is your response. And it's appropriate for you right now. Now, my, my homework for you is honestly to talk to your therapist and do some inner child work, especially because you said you feel like a little girl, like being inappropriately touched by an adult man. There's something there. Now, I'm surprised you don't have a history. Like I thought you would have had a history of, you know, sexual abuse as a child or physical abuse or something like that. But 
you're saying that you don't, and that's fine. But we we need to get in touch with that little girl and the fact that it feels inappropriate and you feel overwhelmed. It's clearly very triggering. And it it's causing you to feel very vulnerable and shut down or freak out or all of the above. And so I really want you to talk to your therapist about this. I want you to let them know that maybe some inner child work could be beneficial. I have my inner child workshop. If you go to katiemorton.com, it's available there for purchase. It's like four hours. I offer books and worksheets and things that could be helpful resources to, to offer yourself as you work through this. But there's something there. Now, the healed enough, it's going to take time. And, and I know you said there's no, again, no history of childhood sexual abuse, but the Courage to Heal workbook is specifically for those of us who had childhood sexual abuse. But the last couple of chapters, and I even offer this, I think it's in my book, Traumatized, where I um, I utilize a tool that they have in that workbook. Um, at the one of the last chapters there, you were supposed to make a list of like touch that's okay and touch that might be okay and touch that's definitely not okay. And I might encourage you to take some time to put that together for yourself. And if you feel comfortable, share that with your person, let them know. If not, maybe that's something we try to work through in therapy and maybe have him come in to therapy. I know, but we need to help him understand what's going on. So he doesn't assume it's him and that, and then he's part of the healing process and not just part of the triggering process. Does that make sense? So see if, you know, think about for yourself and see if he would join you. Okay. And then making that list because the things that touch that might be okay, because you said it's on like any kind of bare skin. So maybe touch on your back through a jacket and a t-shirt is okay. Maybe, you know, him holding the, like his arm around your arm when we have jackets on or long sleeve shirts is okay. I don't know. Let's think about this. Let's think of the things that are okay. Now, I don't know if kissing is okay or if that has nothing, like if it's just a touching, but think about it and figure out which types of touch are okay. Your list might be super short. That's okay. No judgment. Types of touch that might be okay. We don't know. We might try. And touch that isn't okay. And then let's work on it. Start with a touch that's okay. And that's why it's helpful to have him to let him know that we're doing this because then he can kind of work with us and then he knows what's okay and what's not okay. And he can you know, make sure to kind of follow along and, and let you lead the way, but it will get better. I know you're like, how long until I'm healed enough? It, we just need to make sure we're working on the right things. Sometimes I think we can get caught up. And I was just talking with a member of our community about this, how we can get up caught up in the minutia of like the everyday, the things that bothered me now, the stuff that's happening in my life at this very moment. And while that's helpful, and while that is beneficial to kind of let some steam off, we can find ourselves getting caught in it and not moving forward with the real issues, right? Those can almost feel like sometimes like smoke screens. Now, obviously, if we have current traumas and current like crisis crises happening, those need to be tended to. I'm talking just about like the things that are affecting us today because of the past shit we need to work on. Does that make sense? And so instead of allowing that stuff to distract us all the time, we're going to have to look back and work on that stuff so that the symptoms of today go away. Does that make sense? It's almost like they're fruit from the same tree. And instead of just picking the fruit and trying to trim back the leaves, which will just grow right back, we need to take that tree out. It's like from the root. And so we need to get down into it a little bit more. And so I would encourage you to dig into this, maybe see where this is coming from. Consider other times where you felt like you were I mean, I guess 
it's not inappropriately touched by an adult man, but when you maybe felt super vulnerable or like someone could harm you or like you didn't have the right to say no to whatever. Again, it doesn't have to be sexual abuse only. There are other reasons we can have that feeling. I wonder if we know where it's coming from. Let's talk it out with our therapist and with the person in our life and see if we can start to work through this. But that inner child work will be incredibly healing. You know, she might need to hear certain things from us, from older us about being safe or about, you know, certain things happening or not happening or her having a voice that could be really healing too. Okay. Another comment on this said, I've worked in therapy for with this for years now. My trouble with touch does stem from sexual abuse. I am now able to enjoy the physical intimacy with my husband. I no longer freeze or shut down. Amazing. I'm so proud of you. I know it's such hard work, so I'm very proud of you. I can focus on the present when flashbacks come up. My troubles come afterward. And it's not just sex. Any touches. If my body responds a certain way, if I liked it, if I wanted it, etc., I am filled with disgust and self-loathing and shame. If I don't respond a certain way, or if I didn't like it or want it, et cetera, I feel ashamed and broken. Like I'm a burden to be in a relationship with. Either way, there's this spiral of self-hatred, guilt, and shame. I know you will say to tell my therapist and talk about it. And I've tried many times. I cannot write it or say it. It's just so embarrassing to talk about feelings around touching, et cetera. What might stop a spiral after physical touch? We're going to have to challenge those thoughts. It's a shame thought. We talked about this kind of, that's almost like the theme. This episode is shame spirals, right? How to pull ourselves out. There's a certain way that you're talking to yourself afterwards. And so it might be beneficial for you after enjoying, you know, intimacy with your partner to spend some time journaling and challenging those thoughts. I know you're thinking like, well, that doesn't always work out. We don't have to do it every time, but if we do have time or if we have the opportunity to spend like 15 minutes, maybe 30, if you've got it, but it might be too much, 10, 15 minutes should be plenty. Let's pay attention to those thoughts. What are you telling yourself about it? I know you said like, I can't even write about it. It's okay for you just to sit in a quiet space and think about it. But here's the kicker. Instead of letting those thoughts just run rampant and to believe from the get that they are true and that they are valid and that we believe them, because remember, thoughts are not facts, they're just thoughts. And having a thought multiple times doesn't turn it into a fact. Spoilers. I want you to argue back with some bridge statements. I want you to challenge these shame thoughts. I want you to challenge where they're coming from, what they tell you about yourself. Yes, I know this is hard. And at the beginning, you might feel like frozen with it. Keep working at it. If we're just more aware of the thoughts that we have, we might have some comebacks. It's almost like, you know that, I don't know if anybody else does this, but you know when someone's like a total jerk for no reason, maybe it's a stranger, like someone we don't even know says something like, oh, geez, get out of my way or something rude. Like I remember in LA, I had a piece of a banana peel because I was finishing my banana. So I just had like part of it because I'd left, I'd tossed most of it at home in the, in the garbage. And I had a little piece of banana peel and I tossed it out into this like grassy area because it's decomposable. I was in traffic and this guy yelled at me about littering and I'm the reason this, this city is so gross and dirty and all this shit. And about two hours later, I came up with a comeback. <laughs> and do you ever come up with a comeback? Like way, way later. And, and you might think I littered too, and that's fine. I'm not really a litterer. It was just a piece of banana peel. I thought it was fine. Maybe it's not but this guy was really mad. 
But I hated that in the moment I didn't have anything to say. I was just frozen. That's what could happen here. We have all this shit talking happening in our head. And instead of just letting that person yell at us and yell at us, I want you to think about it. At least we're more aware. And if it's hours later, you come up with a comeback, I want you to write those comebacks down. I want, we, I want you to start keeping track of these kinds of bridge statements or ways that we could argue back with facts, not thoughts, facts. And let's just start challenging it because it's, it's that shit talking, it's that shame thought spiral that's holding you frozen in this and it's keeping you feeling bad about it and thinking you're a burden and all these essentially shame filled thoughts that we don't have any evidence to support. We think we do. We don't have any evidence to support. And we can also, you know, bridge statements are like, I'm open to the belief that I might not be as big of a burden as I think I am. Maybe just a little less of a burden, you know, how, how far can you go into that bridge statement land? Let's start doing that. Otherwise we're going to keep having these thoughts and we have these repeated thoughts and it just makes us feel worse and worse. And every time we have them, we think they're more factual and they're not. So challenge them. And yes, I know it's hard but you'll get there. You've already gotten so far. I'm really proud of you. Let's just push through on this. And I understand the difficulty communicating with your therapist. I obviously encourage you to do it, but understand you can't right now. So let's work through it and let's start there. Okay. Final question. Question number eight says, hi, Katie, I love your podcast and learn a lot from it. Yay. That's so wonderful. It says, thanks for all you share. My question is, how can I get my husband to stop talking negatively about my family? It is hard because I get offended sometimes by the stuff he says, even though most of it is true. It doesn't matter if it's true. We'll get into that. It just bothers me. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. He doesn't really like my parents or my siblings. I know they've all made some strange decisions and have personality quirks that are hard to deal with. I agree with him on a lot of his criticisms, but sometimes I just hit an overload and I can't handle talking about negativity or listening to negativity about my family. We got into a big fight over it this week and I told him I don't want to, I don't want to talk about them anymore after he was going on and on about them, laughing and making fun of their stupid choices. I can see that their choices are stupid, and in many ways, my family members seem blind to what they're doing to themselves, but it makes me sad and upset, and I love my family, even though they drive me crazy, and I don't understand them most of the time. My husband's family is the stark opposite. His family's pretty mentally healthy, and mine is pretty dysfunctional, so he can't really relate to this problem. Also, sometimes he'll make comments that I'm acting like my mom, meaning it to be an insult to me. Ooh. The thing is, I'm bound to be like my mom sometimes, mannerisms, facial expressions, etc., because I am her daughter, and I hate that he uses that against me. 
I love my husband and he loves me and we've been together for 16 years. I'm not walking away from him over this, but we need to do better somehow. We've already been to counseling for a different issue. Is this one worthy of counseling? Yes. We'll get into that. I have a good therapist and go back to her anytime, but I don't want to do it unnecessarily. How can we improve our communication about this? Any advice? Thanks. Yes. Go back to therapy immediately. Um, because you're kind of at this struggle point where for some reason that he thinks it's appropriate to, to talk like this and you don't really know how to stop him and you don't know until you're overwhelmed by it. And then it causes a fight. So yes, talk to your, talk to your therapist, get back into couples counseling, but just for the question here, you're going to have to talk to him when, when this isn't an issue, you have to bring it up when he's not talking about them and you're not upset. So neither of you is like emotionally charged about this. He, for some reason thinks it's okay. I find it very offensive as just as you do because of the fact, and here's, here's the truth. And I might be wrong, but here's my hypothesis. And I would assume you feel some, something like this. Yes. Your family has quirks and they're, they make some crazy decisions and we don't always agree with them and they can be kind of annoying, blah, blah, blah. But they're your family and they're the only one you've got and you still love them and you still want them in your life. And to have him point out things like that is just hurtful because they're still part of who you are. Family is interesting because even if we hate them, even if we think they're crazy and they make us feel like losers or they do things that are embarrassing, they're still our family. And like you said, I'm bound to be like my mom. She is my mom. Like I can't help it. I was raised by her, right? That's that closeness of family, feeling like they're part of who we are. They're part of our story. They're potentially a huge part of our story, right? So we can struggle when someone shit talks them. And there's even this old, I don't know who's said this phrase, but even my family used to say this. It's fine if we shit talk our own family, but it's not okay when strangers shit talk the family. And I'm not saying that your husband's a stranger, but he's not in that family, right? He's, he married into it. He doesn't, he didn't grow up with it. It doesn't feel like it's part of him, right? Like you say, he doesn't even understand a lot of like their dysfunction because that's not how he was raised. His was different. They probably have their own dysfunction, right? Every family has dysfunction. So all that to say, we need to talk to him when it's not emotionally charged. And we need to say something to the effect of, I understand, just like you told me, I understand like that you find my family frustrating and you find what they do dysfunctional. And I don't disagree with you there, but I do struggle to have you talk about it all the time. And I honestly struggle with you bringing it up at all because they're still my family and I love them. And I need you to know that in order for, for me to feel loved by you, I'm going to need you to stop talking about them in a negative way. Can you try to do that? Something like that. Something that feels authentic because that's the truth. You love him. You love them. And you can't handle him shit talking them, even though you get it. But that doesn't make it better, right? Just because our family does stuff that we don't like doesn't mean that, you know, we want it thrown in our face all the time. It can feel very personal. So just let him know. And I don't know if that's how it feels for you, but I'm just giving you an option or an opportunity, some idea of how to say it because you do love him and you love your family. And we just need him to stop doing that specific thing. It's very hurtful. And you're not asking for a lot. You're asking him to stop shit talking some people. That's pretty, honestly, that should be a pretty easy lift for him. And yeah, sure. He might still have the thoughts. Who cares? We just can't have him saying it. And you're going to say it hurts my feelings because they still, whether or not they make bad decisions or whether or not they're crazy or whatever he says, they're still my family. 
you know, we don't get to pick our family and we're often very connected to them. We can feel very protective of them. Yeah. So we have to let him know how we feel instead of fighting him and be like, why are you going to say shit like that? Like when if we come out like that, he's going to get defensive. He's not going to understand. And he's going to think that you're, you know, you're overreacting or whatever. So instead we want to do it when we're both cool headed and we want to practice ahead of time. We want to write it down. We want to say it a bunch so we can get it out, keep it short, but just tell him like, they're my family. I understand. I know they make shitty decisions and they're kind of embarrassing, but they're still my family. And when you talk poorly about them, it's really hard for me to hear, which is why I get upset because I love them in spite of all the issues. And I know it's hard for you to understand, but I just need you to not talk about them that way anymore. And you could even ask him. So if you are, if I find you talking about them that way, how could I bring that to your awareness? Because he might do it without realizing now if he's been doing it for a long time. Could I just say, hey, honey, you're doing that again? Ask him so that if, if, and when, because nobody's perfect, it'll happen again. What are you supposed to do? And you've already talked about it. So he won't feel like offended, like you're, you know, but talk to him. Okay. And possibly this conversation should happen in counseling. If you can make that happen, if you, you know, if you don't feel like you can do it on your own, let's do it there. And yes, let's get into counseling. Cause there's, there's kind of a communication breakdown here and I don't, let's not let it fester any longer. Let's pull out that thorn and get it healed. Okay. Okay. Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you for sending in your questions. I hope my answers are helpful and made sense. I love you all. Have a wonderful, wonderful rest of your week. Do your homework and I'll see you next time. Bye. Oh, really? Really? Anything. Sir barks a lot.